Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. In the province of Ontario, 19-year-old Sam Oosterhoff won the Ontario by-election in the riding of Niagara-West-Glanbrook. Happened on Wednesday. And the Liberals held on to their safe seat in Ottawa-Vanier. However, in September, Scarborough Rouge River, considered a safe Liberal Ontario provincial seat, fell to the Progressive Conservatives. So the question is, and we've talked about um, Kathleen Wynne and her Liberal government nationally on this program, and we are a national program. But we've talked about the... uh, the management of the province of Ontario by the uh, the Liberals of Kathleen Wynne. And so what do these by-elections signal? Do they suggest that uh, Wynne is in trouble, or do they suggest that she could be re-elected? With the victory of Donald Trump, there was, a, there was a, some thinking that this signaled that leftist governments and political parties were in electoral trouble for the foreseeable future. We do know that uh, in Ontario, the electricity prices are spiking dramatically, and we had the executive director of the United Way for Bruce Gray County on air a few weeks ago, and she worries that people are going to, some people will lose their lives because they won't be able to heat their homes. They won't be able to afford to heat their homes the way the electricity prices are going under Kathleen Wynne, certainly rurally. There's a lot to be talked about. And joining me on the program to do some of that talking is a man I've known for many years, Dr. Henry Jasek, political science professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, frequent analyst on Canadian Election Night broadcast, which I hosted on CHML Radio in Hamilton. Henry, it's been a long time since we've spoken. That's correct, Roy. I'm glad to be back with you. Well, it's good to talk to you. Who could have ever predicted that we would find ourselves at this particular point in time with these issues staring us squarely in the face? Well, with yeah, politics is full of surprises, I think. <laughs> well, it is. Uh, may I just get a quick assessment from you of what happened in the United States, the, the election of Donald Trump, and then the response now, this continuing um, protesting and, and, and weep-ins uh, on the left? Well, I think what, what happened in the U.S., I mean, I think the most important aspect was that Hillary Clinton was not an attractive candidate to many Democrats. And I think... Probably at least, I mean, estimates are that 5 million people in the United States who, if they had voted, would have voted Democratic, but they just were not enthusiastic about her. They had questions about her. Uh, They couldn't bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump, so they just stayed home. So I think that is sort of viewed as the main main argument uh, as to why... uh, she lost. And of course, Donald Trump, I mean, he kept t- saying that you couldn't trust her. She doesn't tell the truth. And that seeped in, I think, to those people. They, they, they accepted that argument from Donald Trump, and they basically stayed home. Well, the, uh, the FBI director also contributed to that argument, and we know that um, mm-hmm. Mrs. Clinton did lie uh, about a, a number of issues. Where does this go? Let me ask you for a quick 30-second thought from you of where this goes. What kind of What kind of uh, four years are we in store for as far as the American government being functional and people working with one another is concerned? We do have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and the White House is Republican, and most of the governors are are Republican. Well, I think it's going to be a bit rocky. Uh, How rocky, uh, I think it remains to be seen. 
the Senate is going to be a problem, even though the, the Republicans have it. They only have it by about a couple of seats. And uh, that's going to be, you know, the senators, no matter what party they're in, are, are fairly independent-minded people. And you, sometimes you can't count on a senator in your own party of uh, supporting something the president wants or to be against what the president uh, wants to put in there so that's going to be bumpy we're going to have two uh, two years from now we'll have a congressional election if things are very bumpy well then maybe there that might change the senate and house composition um yeah i think that it it it, it you know it really you know it really depends on donald trump i mean i think the extent he's not so much with the people out in the country so much as the democratic uh, leadership in the senate uh, and getting them say, listen, let's try to be reasonable. Let's try to work together at least on some things. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be the key to walk. Henry, the uh, Dr. Henry Jasek is the professor of um, political science at McMaster University in Hamilton. Henry, what's the significance of a by-election at this time? How important are these two by-elections? I think they they tell us something. Uh, the uh, the one here in uh, West. Uh, West Niagara, Niagara, West Glanbrook, uh, is a, was a safe conservative seat, and despite all the turmoil about the local candidate, had a very conf, you know unusual outcome of the PC nomination. But the PC, 19-year-old, youngest member ever to be, well, once he's sworn in, will be the youngest member of the Ontario legislature in history. Uh, but I think the important story there was the Liberals ran third. That was, that's very unusual. Usually the NDP would run a very weak third, it was the Liberals that ran third, and I think that's a very bad sign for the Ontario government, the current Ontario government. You put that together with the Scarborough seat they lost in the by-election a while back. Uh, those are not good signs for the for the Liberal government. And looking at the public opinion polls, particularly the popularity of the Premier, which one of the last polls had her down at 14% popularity, and that is very, very poor. It is. Does this have a spillover effect into the rest of the country? Uh, I think uh, you might, if you're, if you're a provincial liberal, I think you might very well find uh, a little tough sliding, not because people at this point are, ready, are angry in any way with the federal government, but the fact of the matter is I think a lot of people really don't like to put all their eggs in one basket. So if you have a federal liberal government, it means that the other parties, the conservative, progressive conservative parties or Saskatchewan party out in Saskatchewan or the NDP are likely to do better at the provincial level and the liberals are not likely to do as well because you know people want a little bit of balance between their federal and provincial parties and also and, and this is not generally recognized what happens when you have a, a, a political party in Ottawa like the liberals that a lot of the talent in the provinces move from the provinces and they move up to Ottawa and you could see a number of people around the Trudeau government and you would look at them and say, what were they doing the last 13 years? Well, they were down in Ontario running the uh, liberal government in Ontario and running its campaigns. So the talent has gone, the liberal talent has gone to Ottawa quite a bit, plus people wanting to balance things out. So I, I think it's going to be a rough ride for liberals in the provinces over the next few years. Uh, Premier Wynne is the, really the architect of her own misfortune. Uh, hugely unpopular major electricity rate increases. Billions of dollars wasted, according to the provincial attorney general, on the energy file. The, uh, the Trump win in the United States may well influence Canadian elections in the short or longer term. Uh, she's delivered millions of dollars to unions with zero accountability for spending $22 million to teachers' unions. Um, uh, you know, I said earlier, 
driving the electricity bill so high that in rural Ontario, as we heard from the executive director of the United Way in Bruce Gray County on this program, that people are choosing between food and light and heat. Um, and, and also the, the premier being rather cavalier toward her constituents when, when people expressed concern last year about the vetting process uh, for Syrian refugees coming to Canada, Premier Wynne, along with Premier Couillard of uh, Quebec, basically trotted out the racist card. If you, uh, if you challenge the, the, uh, the, the security vetting of, of refugees, then there must be a racist aspect to you. That did not go over well. She's really creating her own um, mess, is she not? Well, she's, she's made some mistakes, there's no question, and she does at times talk down to people, and I think that's what you're, some of the things you're referring to. Yeah. She, she acts like she, you know, when she believes she's right, like she gives you a sermon rather than listening to you, and, I, and that doesn't go over very well. No, it doesn't. Leaders have to listen, even if it's, they don't like what they're hearing, they have to patiently listen to what people have to say. Uh, and on the energy side, I think that while, yeah, there's some mistakes that she's, they've been making there, I think this has been building up in uh, Ontario over the last 13 with the Liberals, is they, uh, they basically were worried about energy prices some time ago, and they said, well, what we'll do is we're not going to set the prices as a cabinet. We're going to let uh, the Ontario Energy Board, uh, uh, an arm's-length board, to set up the prices. And, and therefore, if the prices go up, no one can blame us. They, could, they should blame the Ontario Energy Board. Well, the average person that doesn't know the Ontario Energy Board exists, if the price goes up, they blame the government. So that, I think it was rather, rather, that was a bad mistake on their part. It was a big mistake. A big mistake. Now, they are going to be lowering some of the costs for people beginning January 1st, and I don't know how well that's going to play. I, I think uh, they would have been much better off to, do, to, to lower some of the energy rates. I, myself, per- personally, and I think some other people have pointed it out, including a former environmental commissioner in Ontario, said if you cut dramatically the, co- the off-peak hours, which are about half the day on a work day, that, you know, uh, that probably would go a long way to saving people a lot of money because well. they could, uh, particularly in the summertime, which is when, really when you have the high cost like the past summer, we had a hot summer. Yeah. So, you know, you, you could have the air conditioning on very heavily from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., get a good night's sleep. When you go off to work, work in the morning, we'll maybe turn it up a little bit and not, not spend yeah, too much I, on electricity. I, I, think she's, I think she's really dug a very deep hole for herself on this uh, yeah. electricity so file. I, I just Henry, let me ask you, let me ask you in, in about the minute we have left. The crossing of the floor uh, from, uh, by, by Sandra Jansen in, uh, in Alberta, from the PCs to the NDP, that never, that never goes over well with voters. Well, it, yes, it's, oh, it, it can be a, a, a big problem uh, because people, you know, I always said generally people don't like turncoats. Uh, I think in the case of the PCs in Alberta, I don't live out there, but I suspect they have to be a little bit careful about how they attack the premier uh, on this particular issue, and we'll see how it plays out. I probably, it, it could turn out not so well, but I think you can overreact in politics, so you got to be a you know the the PCs out there have to be a little careful about overreacting to it, mm-hmm. and and uh, and and then play it. So it's unclear how that's really going to work out there. And in about ten seconds, is nineteen? This is the question people are asking: Is nineteen too young to be a member of a provincial legislature? Well, we have we have the law that says you can do that, and uh, you know it, it's going to be interesting. The Ontario legislature, when he is sworn in, we're going to have the oldest member in the history of the Ontario legislature sitting there, Monty Quinter, a liberal, and we're going to have the youngest ever. So what I think is we're, we're going to have 
this is maybe the beginning of having much older members and much younger members. So it's going to be an interesting time. Be. Henry, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the okay, time thanks, today. Roy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Criminal lawyers in this country and judges, including uh, at least one former Supreme Court justice, are describing Canada's criminal code as, quote, embarrassingly bad. And they're calling on the uh, government of Justin Trudeau to entirely rewrite Canada's criminal code structure. It's been in place for a long time. Scott Newark is former senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety and former Alberta Crown Attorney. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've taught me everything I know about criminal justice in this country, Scott. Um, has this been just a, has this been a, a mess for a long time? Yeah, it's, this is not a new situation. Uh, what prompted it is actually a, a new bill that the Justice Minister introduced that is in response to previous rulings by courts. Um, in effect, what the bill does is it lowers the age of consent for sodomy. Um, and the reason for that was because of previous court rulings, the age of consent for sodomy was higher than it was for normal sexual activity. Um, and so it caught the attention uh, in the article that I read of a bunch of professors who've been pointing this out for a long time. There's a, there's a series of problems, the, the most obvious of which is this fact that when courts uh, now charter-empowered are striking down laws, that doesn't necessarily mean that Parliament then passes a law that repeals the section in the criminal code. And so some of these sections actually remain within the criminal code, even though our courts have ruled them to be unconstitutional. That's what happened in Alberta. Yeah, that, that's probably the best example. It was on that Vader case, the uh, uh, the murder. And, I mean, embarrassingly, the judge had agreed to let his ruling be televised. And then he referenced a section that had been ruled unconstitutional in determining the intent of this guy so as to constitute murder. He referenced a section uh, that had been ruled unconstitutional about 15 years ago. And, of course, the defense lawyers went, uh, excuse me. So that was probably the most uh, glaring example of it. But the, the article cites a whole bunch of different articles. I think the larger problem, though, and, and in fact, when I was with the Canadian Police Association, and I worked quite closely with then-Justice Minister Alan Rock, who's an absolutely great uh, minister to work with, we actually even specifically discussed this, because our system is based on the old English common law system, which you and I have discussed many, many times on this show, it's one of the things I like about it. Our approach was essentially this offender, this offense. It's where we gave um, essentially judges, uh, but also prosecutors, or the officials within the system. They were given discretion, and real emphasis was, paid, was placed on the wording of the laws being succinct and brief. And what happened, probably going back into the uh, 70s and 80s, um, I think a lot of the lawyers that came into the Federal Department of Justice responsible for the drafting of laws didn't have the common law education background. They came from Quebec where they had a civil law mm-hmm. back, uh, background, which, unlike the, com- the British common law system, places an emphasis on detailing everything. Scott, uh, let me ask you the layperson's question. If this is such a mess, and it was created in 1892, I'm uh, looking at a number of stories here, CBC yeah. had one, uh, and it was uh, overhauled in the 1950s and then reviewed in the 70s. If it is such a mess, is it then more difficult? Is, is it not automatic that someone will receive appropriate justice under the Criminal Code of Canada? Can this, can, because the system, the code is such a mess, 
embarrassingly so, say the judges, the lawyers. Uh, is it possible for somebody to just not get the justice they deserve? Uh, I think in, in many ways, Roy, that depends on who you're speaking of. Uh, frankly, for it, the, the whole process focus and how arcane it's become in the way that the legislation is drafted, I think feeds into that justice system inefficiency. And, you know, you're starting to see those cases uh, just this week in Ottawa where somebody charged with murder had the, uh, the charge thrown out by the judge because they decided, thanks to a new Supreme Court ruling, that it was taking too long. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the byproduct of some of this stuff, is that as it gets more and more complex and more and more difficult, that not 100%, but I think a, a, in a significant way, leads to systemic inefficiencies. Well, I'll tell you... Or a less suitable performing justice system. And just yeah. looking at some of the laws that are still on the books, spreading false news fraudulently pretending to practice witchcraft, water skiing at night, vagrancy... Never prosecuting somebody for, uh, pro- for uh, practicing witchcraft, or fraudulently practicing witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> Procuring, uh, let's see, uh, dueling is out. Ah, yes. Crime comics and issuing trading stamps uh, also. So it's, it's, it's important stuff, fascinating stuff. You and I will talk about it again, my friend. Thank you for the time. Okay. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety and former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Embarrassingly bad is the Criminal Code of Canada, according to judges and lawyers. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, U.S. Vice President-elect Mike Pence attended a Broadway presentation of Hamilton last night. You know that by now booed by some in the audience, cheered by others. And following the performance, a cast member delivered a message on stage that, quote, diverse Americans are alarmed and anxious. Your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, end quote. Oh, well. Um, Well, here's another one. The American Academy of Pediatrics released a post-election recommendation which encourages parents to talk to their children about Donald Trump's POTUS election victory so the children can avoid long-term psychological trauma. Some, um, some pediatricians have left the uh, organization over that. Joining me on the program is John Zogby. He's a highly respected highly respected United States pollster. He was on the air with his um, Zogby Analytics. He was on the air with us many times over the period of the primaries and then the election. John is also the author of We Are Many, We Are One. And the book breaks down people in the United States into 11 different tribes. Um, John Zogby joins us on the Roy Green Show. John, how are you after the election? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. You know, especially now that the election's over. But I am fine. Um, and, you you know, it's democracy. You've got to get over it, Roy. Um, and no, no partisan statement from me whatsoever. But I think that, you know, for a country that purported for decades to export democracy um, and with varying degrees of success and failure, um, We've got to understand that the American people have to accept the results of our own democracy, pure and simple. Uh, I also think that people should get over it. Uh, 
you know, I think it's important that those who supported Hillary Clinton uh, uh, protest, uh, demonstrate, remind the incoming administration of what's been said during the campaign and what their needs are so that they're, uh, they can have some influence. But when I, I hear chanting, we must reject the president-elect, uh, I get troubled by that. Um, and, it, it, you know, we, it's not the first time we've heard such things. Uh, back in 2000, that very close disputed election, Al Gore versus George W. Bush, I took a poll uh, for Reuters uh, right before Thanksgiving, so three weeks after our election, and two-thirds of Bush supporters said that they would not accept Al Gore as the legitimate president of the United States if he were to become president. When I hear questions of legitimacy following something where, you know, 126 million people participated, um, it's troubling. It's it's deeply troubling because it's a fundamental objective for m- maybe billions of people around the world to have the opportunity to do exactly what the American people did on November the 8th and what Canadians do as well in our elections, and that is have free democratic elections where we make choices about who's going to be leading the, the country or the province or the state or the city um, for an appreciable period of time. And when it's over... Then it's then it's over. But John, how split is the United States? I know in your book you have I think it's a it's eleven tribes, right? Yep, yep. So so talk to um, us about that and how split is the uh, is the American populace and where do the tribes fit in? Okay, well, f- for starters, um, you know, in matters of politics, we're about half and half, and it's not just that half support the Democratic candidate and half. Uh, support the Republican candidate. It's the level of intensity on both sides that's almost unprecedented since the the Civil War. This has been going on now for, you know, a a decade, a decade and a half or so. Um, So much so that the uh, elected representatives in Washington, D.C., and in many of the, the state legislatures, don't even feel the need to cross the aisle anymore. They're talking to their supporters and ignoring the people who don't vote for them and ignoring members uh, uh, you know, across the aisle from them. Where the tribes come in is um, I sought to redefine who we are as, as a people uh, and to go beyond demographics uh, to, to find attributes and values that, that people say they share and for, for the public actually to have the opportunity over a number of years um, in a sequence of surveys to tell us who they are and tell us uh, what attributes define them and to tell us what their tribe is, uh, name it, and on what basis they, would, uh, they, they choose people to, that they associate with. And I came up with 11 distinct tribes um, who are very different, who cross demographic lines. I mean, they're not mainly young or mainly old or mainly in the east or mainly in the south, but they, uh, they, they cut across all sorts of, of, of groupings. But there's, I think, 
for me anyway, a very powerful chapter in the book where I talk about bridging the tribes. And what I've discovered is that there are things that even seemingly um, opposed tribes and different tribes, um, there, there, there are ways in which they intersect with each other and share some common ideas, mm-hmm. some common opinions on policies. And, you know, with leadership, you know, the, the raw wounds that we feel can be healed. But it seems like in the last decade and a half, too much um, has gone into emphasizing what separates us. All right, John, in, in the minute and a half we have left, what, what could happen? And I, I don't want an alarm prognostication, but just what, what has the potential to develop? Because I'm just thinking as you were talking that I spoke with, uh, with delegates who were going to the, uh, the Republican convention armed because they had concerns that there would be violence in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now we're seeing this continuing uh, uh, anger, frustration, weeping in the mm-hmm. streets. Uh, people are, are lining up on, uh, on polar opposites. What's, what's the potential here? Well, it can go either way. The optimistic note, we can see that maybe Donald Trump has his ear to the ground, uh, is, is hearing what his opponents are saying, and is ultimately a pragmatist. He's already started to back off a bit on some of the more radical proposals that he's made, building a fence, for example, and uh, um, eliminating Obamacare. Uh, on the flip side of that, he may very well have unleashed uh, a force that he himself can't even control by you know, his language and his rhetoric kind of empowering uh, fringe elements. Um, you know, I, opponents of Donald Trump are not terribly pleased with some of the appointments that he's made, attorney general, national security advisor, special counsel, people that appear to be um, uh, radical extremists in, in some way. To them. So it can go either way. It's worrisome. Uh, it really is worrisome. But it, it really, is it, is it Donald Trump's responsibility to change, or is it the responsibility of the electorate who voted for uh, Hillary Clinton and she lost, or, or, or in fact didn't bother to vote, to uh, adjust to the fact that 60-plus million Americans decided in 30 out of 50 states that Donald Trump was going to be the president they wanted for the next four years? As you said, get over it. Um, look. To some degree, we have got to accept the results of an election. To demonstrate and to remind, um, and to not forget, um, to make statements, perfectly fine. Although, I would have to say that if the vice president-elect is going to a play, then leave him alone. Leave him alone. You know, it's I, a play. I don't know that. You it's know, a play. That's not illegal, but uh, maybe poor taste. Yeah. To have an audience booing someone who was legitimately elected... Uh, I don't know who that ultimately helps. I don't think it helps anybody. John, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much. Same here. Good talking to you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Is the opioid crisis a national public emergency which the federal government must take steps on and quickly? As politicians, public health officials, and families who've been directly involved are meeting on the issue, the question is also raised... 
about the many Canadians in an aging national population who live with severe and debilitating 24-7 pain they describe as torture and whose lives are made bearable by opioid pain medication. Must these patients fear their medication will be denied going forward? This is a uh, this is a major issue uh, in Canada, in the United States, and beyond. Joining me on the program to speak to this is uh, Dr. David Yurlink from the Faculty of Medicine. He's the head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Expertise is in drug safety and Canada's opioid crisis. Dr. Yurling, thank you very much for the time. Can I just start at the beginning? Would you explain to us the, the depth of this opioid crisis? What do we need to know? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty substantial. Um, we have somewhere in the order of about 2,500 to 3,000 people who will die this year in Canada alone. And over the last two decades, have probably lost 20 or 25,000 citizens to... Um, to opioids. Now, some of those people, a good many of them, had uh, addiction, but some of them just died during the course of well-intentioned treatment for pain. Some of the people who did die of addiction or who have it now got that way because of how the uh, drugs were prescribed to them. Um, but it's a, a crisis of the sort that we've not really seen before. It's, it's, it's a, it really is a, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but it's a disaster. Has this been coming along slowly, or did it just suddenly explode into uh, onto the scene? Well, it, it's evolved over the last 20 years or so, and it, it has to do with how we treat pain. And you alluded in your opening to the importance of pain, and it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, it's an important problem, and it's one that doctors uh, are faced with every day. And uh, one of the things we often turn to is medication. Now, about, uh, in about the mid-90s, we began to start prescribing opioids much more readily than we historically had, um, and because we were taught, we were told, that you could do that and it would, the drugs would work well and that they could be used safely and that people wouldn't become addicted. Um, and that message came, uh, you know, when you drilled into it, it came from the companies that ha- have subsequently made billions of dollars from the products, but it was delivered by by pain experts who I think for the most part believed what they were saying. Um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we now know that the, there was no good data to support those claims. Um, and it looks like somewhere in the order of 10% of people who go on long-term opioids become addicted. And the drugs do wear out over time, and they have a whole host of harms that we were not taught about. So what we've seen is the with, with the liberal prescribing of opioids, it's a message that doctors are quite happy to hear, by the way. I mean, we like when patients, uh, when suffering is relieved. And it's gratifying when the patients come back and say, the medicine you put me on has helped me. Um, but we've become very familiar and very comfortable with using opioids. And what we've seen is this kind of rolling harm um, related to our prescribing. And it's evolved recently where, you know, now people are starting to source um, the very dangerous synthetic chemicals like fentanyl and related drugs from China to feed, um, to feed their problem when doctors start cutting them off or when they can no longer afford uh, the prescription stuff. Well, what happens then to patients who are living with massive chronic pain issues, unavoidable perhaps, in a rapidly aging population, patients uh, for whom life without their pain, opioid meds, as people have sent me emails, uh, they describe it as torture. What about these patients, maybe millions who haven't presented a a problem? What what should happen to them? Are they they going to be cut off? No, well, they shouldn't be. And I think this is an important point to make. And if there's any doctor listening to this program or any patient listening, I can't say this clearly enough. 
I mean, we have a, a crisis of addiction in Canada and in the U.S., but we're not going to fix that by destabilizing people on pain medicine and by cutting them off. We're going to make it worse, right? So if I have a patient on high doses of opioids for chronic pain, which is generally not a good idea, um, but they're out there and they're out there in large numbers. If we start cutting their their doses, you know, in a hurry, um, uh, they're going to get sick. Uh, they're going to go into withdrawal, uh, and they might well seek whatever relief they can get, including buying stuff on the street. And that's going to make things worse. So, um, I think you know it, it's a very complex issue. There, you know, if, if there are let's say that there are a million patients in Canada on prescribed opioids every day. There's two kinds of people like that. There, there are people who are doing well, and there are people who are not doing well. And the problem here, to be very blunt about this, is that there are an awful lot of people who think they're doing well, but who aren't. And they're being harmed by their medicines in ways that they don't necessarily appreciate. They're very subtle, and it's, it's a long story. But the point is that you know what we need to do is prescribe much more responsibly, but, but cut is exactly the wrong thing to do. Dr. there uh, is there medication that is available that can actively and, and well substitute for the opioids? Yeah, well, that's part of the, part of the uh, urgency of treating patients with addiction. So, um, you know, if, if someone's, you know, shooting up heroin or snorting whatever they're snorting and um, they're, they're doing it despite harm to themselves, uh, one of the key elements of therapy is getting them on something safer, something like uh, Suboxone or Buprenorphine is sort of the main drug in that group. You yeah. may have heard of yeah. I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about the person who is living an ordinary life and, uh, and, and, and has these... I was reading an article about this earlier today, mm-hmm. and it's very disturbing to hear what people are going through as far as pain is concerned. And, and if they are removed, they, they, they argue if, they're, if their opioid medications are removed from them, taken away from them, or reduced significantly, they will just not be able to continue to live. That's scary to hear. Well, it, it is, but let me reiterate that the, the taking their pain medicine away is not the right thing to do. Um, I will tell you with confidence that many of those people, um, and this is not a popular message, but it's true, many of those people uh, have pain that is being made worse by opioids. Okay, so this is an underappreciated side effect of these drugs. As the dose goes up, uh, the pain transforms, and it goes from low back pain to pain all over. Uh, and it's a horrible thing, uh, but it's not widely perceived by doctors or patients as a side effect of the drugs. And if you can take these people on these extraordinary doses, hundreds of milligrams of morphine or more per day, and slowly, and with their cooperation, slowly is the key word, bring them down, over a period of weeks or months, you will often find that their pain gets better and their depression scores improve and their quality of life improves, and patients will tell you that. So it's a difficult conversation. It varies, of course, from patient to patient, um, but, but I want to reiterate, taking people's meds away uh, abruptly is exactly the wrong thing to do. And it's also critical, the numbers that you're, uh, you're, you're citing are, are Critically, I mean, they're alarming. This is alarming to hear this this information. So, a lot of work has to go into this, and a lot of objective work, and, and a lot of cooperative work. Um, and, you're right. And at the end of the day, the patient is going to be. I'm talking again about the patient who requires the help. That's the person who needs the assistance. And um, I, I'm well. We'll see what comes out of this going forward. Uh, I think if I could speak one last point, it's important to be clear that people with opioids long term. Uh, we just don't know who they are when we start them on the therapy. And I can tell you that the higher the dose goes, the less likely it is that this is someone who's being helped more than harmed by their medicine. All right. Dr. Yerling, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure.
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I first saw it very early um, this month, or maybe it was October, late October. But it has to do with a sort of terrible situation for a family. And the story is of a father in British Columbia, in uh, Surrey, B.C., And this father has two sons that the story identifies. One of the sons has been convicted of uh, illegal drug activity, and he's, or was at the time, being held and waiting for sentencing. The father has another son who's 19 years of age, who, according to what I read, has told the family that he's doing exactly the same thing his older brother is doing, and that is drug dealing. And so the father has great concern that he'll wind up with both sons in prison or maybe be one or both sons dead. So he went to a radio talk show host in, uh, in, Vancouver, in the Vancouver area and uh, spoke to the host about this, and the host suggested that the dad get in touch with the RCMP, which he's done. And he's begging the RCMP to arrest his 19-year-old son. And the police are not doing it. The police are not saying what they're doing, but they won't arrest him. And uh, they say that they admire the fact that the father has come forward and that they've been speaking to the family. But um, they also say that just because he's the dad, he doesn't have the right to information about his son. Because his son is an adult at 19 years of age. So imagine the, the, the nightmare situation, the horror, the fear of this father. Loves his kids. One of them's going to prison. The other one is on the same track as the older brother, according to the dad, and now he's afraid he may end up, his, may end up dead. So he's asking the cops for help. There was another story in, uh, in Ontario where parents were pleading with a, with a judge to hold their 17-year-old son in, in, in custody because he's attempted suicide three times. He's apparently a, a meth addict who's threatened his mother. They don't want him living in the house anymore, but they're desperately worried about this uh, young man. And they're asking they ask the judge to, to keep him in, in custody. Protective custody, but because he's 17 years of age, he falls under the Youth Justice Act, and and so there's the the charges were not severe enough for detention. This is uh, this is awful stuff, and I imagine there are parents listening to this program right now who have faced a similar situation or maybe facing it now. David Butt is one of this country's most visible, most um, recognized, most appreciated. Uh, criminal lawyers. He's also a media commentator, writes opinion pieces, op-ed pieces for the Globe and Mail. And David is kind enough to spend time with us on this program. David, I, I just feel heartsick for these, uh, for these parents. I feel terrible for them. Uh, what are we dealing with legally? Yes, it's a, you're absolutely right, Roy. The first and foremost is a heartbreaking situation uh, all around. So what what they're running up against uh, legally are you know a bunch of ideas that 
make sense when you consider them in the abstract, but when you actually come to apply them to particular cases, it becomes a lot less clear that they're a good idea. So the first is, you know, the, the dad who's begging with the police to arrest his son. Uh, the police, and, and again, quite properly, are held to standards before they can effect an arrest. They have to dem- be able to demonstrate to a court that they have reasonable grounds that someone has committed an offense. And certainly the father's information, I know that's what my son is doing, or perhaps even my son has told me that's what he's doing, uh, is a good start to an investigation, but it's not enough by itself to effect an arrest. So they need to conduct additional investigation. And I certainly hope, given the amount of publicity this case has got, that they are doing that investigation. Sometimes investigations get... uh, you know, waylaid for what the police perceive to be more important or more pressing cases. I certainly hope they're giving the attention to this case, are gathering the evidence, and will be in a position to get to the bottom of it. That's the first thing they're facing. And the same thing with the, with the judge, uh, who can't hold an individual in, in, uh, in custody, uh, the Ontario case you gave of the meth addict. Uh, again, quite rightly, we insist that uh, we be very hesitant to incarcerate people unless they have demonstrated that they have, uh, by their criminal actions, sacrificed their right to be free. So, again, it's a high standard to make before you're uh, put into jail. And those are some of the legal difficulties that these uh, very caring and loving parents are bumping up against. And in the case of the 17-year-old, it's complicated even more because he's because he is 17. That's right. And generally speaking, under our Youth Criminal Justice Act, because kids uh, are kids and they make errors in judgment, we're much more reluctant to use jail as a punishment just because we don't want to saddle kids like that with uh, a criminal record. We don't want them to be locked up. Uh, we, we try to, to uh, pursue alternative ways of helping them to correct their behavior. So again, that makes it much more difficult to put a young person uh, behind bars. And you're talking uh, about a 17-year-old who's apparently attempted suicide three times. So, again, parents who are in absolute anguish, I ask myself, why is there not something in place uh, within the criminal code structure? And we did a segment earlier today about the criminal code being lawyers calling and judges calling for the code to be completely rewritten because it's such a mess. But uh, wouldn't it be possible under the existing conditions to draft some sort of legislation which would allow a a parent um, to intervene in his or her child's life in the manner this father in Vancouver is trying to intervene. Can you imagine? He goes for help. He pleads for help over a period of time. And then one day, one day, he gets the news that his son is dead. His son's been killed. And, and And he stands there and he says, I was asking for help. I asked for help. I asked for help. Nobody gave it to me. Yes. Yes, and, and again, absolutely. Your, uh, your heart goes out to the father in that uh, very anguished uh, position. And, um, you know, can we improve our uh, response around people who uh, um, are involved in, in the, both the use and the trafficking of drugs? Absolutely, and I think that there's a, a very deep rethink going on now, and I, and I hope that we'll come up with improved uh, solutions. An- another option... Um, particularly with re- relation to the uh, Ontario case where you have a, uh, an addicted person who's attempted suicide, 
there could be a mental health component. And so police do have the power to apprehend someone under the Mental Health Act if they are a danger to themselves or to others. So someone who is uh, definitely suicidal and in the throes of addiction and out of control may be someone that could be apprehended under the Mental Health Act. So I think it's a question uh, with both the BC case and the Ontario case of looking at ways that we can um, help people like that without necessarily stigmatizing them as, as criminals. You know, if, if there's drug dealing, then stigmatization as a criminal may be appropriate. But we want to look at that, that whole spectrum of behaviors, some of which may be criminal, some of which may not be, but all of which um, are crying out for uh, a response that will help the family get through this crisis. David, if uh, if in the Vancouver case, let's say it happened in, uh, in Toronto where you practice law and... Uh, someone came to you with the identical situation and, and were to say, look, my, uh, my son has just been arrested and charged with criminal drug dealing. I had concerns about uh, his activities, which he told me he was involved with. I went to the police and I asked them to please arrest him to, uh, to, to, to intervene. They didn't. Um, so now, now he's charged with a criminal uh, offense. Would that be something that you could take to court and argue persuasively uh, before a judge to to mitigate against a sentence against a, I guess yeah, I'm, I'm really reaching here, but yeah, this, this, yeah. this troubles me. And, and again, you, you appreciate where the father's coming from emotionally. Legally, yeah. um, it would be much difficult to to argue because we don't have a power of preventive arrest. So we can arrest someone before they commit a crime just because they're worried that they might. Uh, our criminal justice system is reactive, so. Uh, the, you know, the, the need here to prevent this kind of behavior may lie earlier on in terms of, you know, what kind of uh, supports uh, were available to this individual going through school, uh, what kind of social resources might have been available to assist the parents in their parenting, what kind of resources might, be, might have been available for uh, the child themselves to engage them in more proactive social activities, that's really where we have to look rather than a police response of a preventive arrest. Because I think everyone would agree that prevention is way better than arrest and prosecution after right. the crime's committed. So that really the prevention piece is where we have to focus our attention. Yeah, thank you for your patience. This, is, this one's really bothered me, particularly when I, when I mentioned it to, uh, to someone uh, privately, just in conversation, that person said to me, the father should just butt out of his kid's life. I thought that was pretty harsh. Oh, gosh. Try telling any loving parent that they should butt out of their kid's life. I mean, we uh, we care about our kids uh, from day one till the till the last breath we draw. So I'm not sure that's an option. And as I say, it's, it's all about uh, families and society generally working together to provide a more positive environment yeah. uh, for these kids who may be at risk. David, thank you for the time today, and, uh, and thank you for all the time you give us. Much appreciated. My pleasure as always, Roy. Good Bye-bye. talking. David Butt, criminal lawyer in uh, Toronto, one of the best in the country. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It is time for the beauties. It is time for Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, uh, independent business journalist, LindaLeatherdale.com. And Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, former seatmate to the Prime Minister, and uh, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter.
Okay. I had something I wanted to tell you. But it's gone. Are you there? I'm here. Yes. Hello, Roy. Yep. I had something I wanted to... Oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. I, wanted, I know what I wanted to ask you about. I'm going to have to be delicate. How, do you, how am I delicate? How can I be delicate about this? Uh, time well spent in Canada's Parliament... Between Elizabeth May... Oh, jeez. <laughs> I know what you're going to talk about. And who was the other one? Michelle it, Rempel, wasn't it? Was it Michelle Rempel? Okay. Yeah. And it had to do with... You're talking about the flatulence debate? That's right. Mm-hmm. The F word. Yeah. F-A-R-T. Can you believe this? It's... it's I mean, a, come on, people. What? Get, get with the program. I about it. You're going to argue about... Oh, anyway, it just defies belief that Elizabeth May would make a big stink. Ha ha ha! Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> well done. <laughs> About something, yeah, this this trivial. Anyway. So so here we are in Canada's Parliament, and this becomes an issue that, and of course, it makes the news because, I, you know, you can have four guys in a, in a car heading back from playing golf, and I speak from experience, and someone passes gas, and it's the funniest thing all the way home for four guys. Women just look at you like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? What is wrong with you people? Well, it's just the way we're, it's the way our DNA is structured. So I was surprised to find that in Parliament we had two women members of Parliament debating the use of that word. Anyway. Well, it's not just men, because I, I, I brought up two sons, and let me tell you, I'm, I can be in there with the worst of them. Okie dokie. So. They, they really did. I must have missed that story. They well, really Michelle Rimpel was talking about the situation in Alberta yeah. and how desperate it was, and she happened to use the, you know, the F-A-R-T word. And um, Elizabeth May just went eight saying this was unparliamentary and everything, so. Oh, <laughs> Elizabeth God. May, by the There's way, is known to um, rip a few um, nice words out, too, so. <laughs> so here we are, and the uh, whole country's talking about it, and there are a few other things going on. In, in the country and in the world. So, uh, what should we begin with? Uh, do you want to start with... What's on your mind? What do you want to start with? Alberta. Okay. And oh, the, 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 crossing, the crossing of the floor? Yeah, the crossing, crossing of the, the floor. floor. That was interesting. Yeah. Very. Yeah. And, my, you know, it sounds like uh, they're really upset with my good friend Jason Kenney, who started the tax crusade here in Ontario... Taxpayers Federation, and uh, they're making him sound like a Donald Trump, Roy. I want everybody to know it's at Linda Leatherdale. That's where you go, not at the Roy Green Show. Well, what I'm saying is um, I'm not sure, and I wasn't at that particular, you know, their convention that I guess, um, but she quit and crossed over to the NDP. I, I believe it's the first time in the history of Alberta that a conservative has gone to NDP, and uh, another woman quit as well, and uh, they seem to be thinking that it is almost anti-women, and I'm I'm just comparing that sentiment to what is going on south of the border. Now, I was just having a little fun with you, but, <laughs> but it really, let's talk about the issue of, and uh, you were elected to, to office, Michelle. Is there not a is there not a contract between the voters and the representative who who is in parliament or in the provincial legislature uh, representing the the people of the constituencies? Is there not a contract that says this is what I ran on, this is where I'll stay, 
And and should it not be if if you plan on leaving, then I'm going to step aside and there'll be a by-election? In my mind, ethically, absolutely. I never had any time or respect for, I don't care who it was, for a floor crosser. You have, in my mind, uh, made a commitment to a constituency. And, you know, if next go around, the next election, you know, you've seen and heard enough that you think it's, you know, justified, then run for the new party. But to simply cross the floor, to me, is a betrayal. Yeah, I agree, Michelle. And I, I mean, people voted in these people based yeah. on a certain set of circumstances, and then they think they can unilaterally change them. But, you know, back to your comment, Roy, uh, it, it happens all the time. Look at mm-hmm. Melinda Stronach, for example. Remember that a bunch of years ago? And uh, that, what, a, what a kerfuffle that was because it was extremely close in terms of the seat count. Uh, Scott Bryson, federally. I, I, anyway, there's undoubtedly a very long list of people that have crossed the floor Garth over Turner, the years. But Garth I agree. Re- run afresh with your new affiliation and let the voters decide on it. Yep. I, I agree. That's the way it has to it's be. It's either self-serving, too. Like, I would Always argue, self-serving. It, you know, it's self-serving in terms of preserving your job, income, or maybe some incentive if you're leaving one party to go to the government. And I, I just find it heinous. I do. What do you think of the? And we had a bit of a discussion on this earlier. We've got a 19-year-old Sam Oosterhof, uh, who's progressive conservative. Um, now won uh, by-election in Ontario in the uh, Niagara region, Glenbrook, and he's now going to be sitting in the Ontario legislature. And there are people who are saying, 19 years of age, you don't have enough life experience to be uh, representing the, uh, any, any group of people in, in, a, in a Canadian legislature. Others saying that uh, he'll be taken advantage of because of his inexperience. And others are saying, hang on, the rules are the rules and uh, give, the, give him a chance. Give him exactly. a chance. I agree with that. I was more surprised. That was a pretty safe seat. That was Tim Hudak's seat, you know, former leader of the Conservative Party and, right. and uh, progressive conservatives in Ontario. I was more surprised that, well, maybe I shouldn't have been the Ottawa Vanier, because there was two by-elections, as, as you know. Um, and Andre Marin, the previous ombudsman for Ontario, who's a real firecracker, um, lost yeah. to a nondescript liberal, which surprised me. But again, that, this, that has to be a riding full of public you know, sector workers, um, and they're just going to keep voting for the people that grease their wheels, despite the fact that it hurts the rest of us quite uh, profoundly when they do that. <laughs> You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mark Yost, who is a guest on this program quite regularly, writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal, is an author on uh, books on the business of sport, and uh, we'll be with this tomorrow on the Phil Jackson story. He's, uh, he sent me an email about young people protesting the election of Donald Trump. And Mark writes, Roy, I wonder if... All the excessive millennial grief over the win by Donald Trump is the result of years of kids being used to everybody and getting participation ribbons in their school, years with everybody winning, not realizing that there are always winners and losers in life. And I would say that well, many of today's one... kids are not equipped to deal with losing. It's not just kids, though. Uh, um, it kills me. I saw a really good tweet. I can't remember who it was from, but... 
It was basically, um, remember when all those, uh, you know, conservatives were out rioting and causing havoc when Barack Obama was elected? No, me neither. Uh, (laughs) Why is it that the left feels it incumbent upon them to protest the result of a Democratic, and I'm no no Trump fan and nor was I a Hillary fan, but still, you know, this this is the way the system works, guys. It works sometimes in your favor, sometimes not. And I think it's that arrogance of a certain certain, you know, group within so-called liberal, and I mean small liberal circles, who really feel that they have the monopoly on truth, and no, anybody that disagrees with them, well, you know, that, that's just impossible, because they just know everything, and then no one else has a valid point of view. And, and that, that, to me, is appalling. And by the way, that, that play on Broadway, Hamilton, did you hear what happened there? Was oh, yeah. That? We talked about it earlier. Oh, yeah. you did. Okay, sorry, yeah. Lori, but... I mean, that was outrageous to my yeah, way of thinking. It is. Can you um, imagine if it was a, um, you know, a, a conservative uh, actor and, and saying that about, uh, just outrageous. Well, uh, what was it William Buckley wrote? Uh, liberals all, always want to hear, no, no insult intended, Michelle, because you're a pragmatist, but liberals always want to hear another opinion until they find out there is one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They believe in free speech as long as everybody agrees with them. <laughs> there you go. So, um, uh, Michelle Simpson, y- y- your thoughts on what's going on? Because you're there. Well, it, well Roy, it, it, to Catherine's point, there are winners, there are losers. Um, you know, it's starting to die down a bit. They're getting, you know, settled in a little more. But, you know, as the um, cabinet selections roll out, that's where you're seeing some of it start up again. I don't like this one, and I don't like that one, and can you believe this? And uh, I, think, I think for the most part, some people are starting to get the fact that Trump isn't going to have an easy ride and that uh, he somehow uh, underestimated what he could do, one person, drain the swamp. Well, but that goes for politics in general. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Saying decades ago, it was, I can't believe how easy it was for me to become prime minister. His son would, could say that in space. Um, but how difficult it was to change anything once I got there. And Trump will face exactly the same situation. Uh, uh, Linda, what do you think? Well, he will. But you know what? Let's not forget that one of the heart of the issues was national security and the fear of what's going on around the world. And I think bringing in some of these hardline guys, and I agree, Michelle, like some of them are a little scary. Uh, Briette Bart, that website, that news link, and now Stephen um, Bannon, who is his chief strategist. But having said that, that's what the people wanted. They wanted change, and they wanted a national security. And I think that, you know, everybody said he was going to back off some of these things. And I think from who he's appointing, it sounds like he's not going to Well, I'm going to tell you, to get here's, here's what you need to get ready for. More of the same, and globally, because people, we've been saying this, this movement is underway, and it's not going to be... It's not going to be stopped. It's not going to be dissuaded. And if, unless Donald Trump turns out to be an absolute disaster, um, but barring that, you know, I think you're going to see m- more of the same in Europe next year because people are just fed up. They're just fed up. And, and this is the response to being fed up. There was something else I wanted to tell you. Oh, uh, we have a um, former Navy SEAL on with us tomorrow. 
who's, who knows uh, Steve Bannon very well, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's uh, he's going to be on with us. He was on uh, the Megyn Kelly show uh, two nights this past week and created quite a lot of controversy. So he will be joining us tomorrow on the show. We'll there. be listening. Yeah, we'll have Forgot to what I was going to... That sounds very interesting. I've been sort of wrestling with myself about whether I should say something here or not. Can I say something, yes. Catherine? You know what I yes. mean. You're talking about my doggie? Yeah. Oh. yeah. I'm so sorry. We're so very sorry. Catherine sent an email to... Uh, to Linda and Michelle and me earlier today. And she lost her friend of 13 years, her doggy, and all of us who've had dogs uh, in our lives have gone through this. We've gone through what you're going through. It's very, very difficult. And the biggest problem with dogs is they don't live long enough. No, no, you're absolutely right. And he was a great dog. Oh, Catherine, well, they're like family. Yeah. They are. They are. They're definitely family. And um, he was old and sick. You know, I mean, it was necessary. I, you know, it, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't help the, the pain in your heart. You know, no. it really doesn't. Yeah. Well, well, hearts are with you, Catherine. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you can borrow my dogs if you want. <laughs> oh, my son has three. Listen, we got lots of dogs in the family. It was okay. this guy. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody that has a dog says it, but... He was very special to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have him from the time he was a pup? Did you have him all his life? No, I adopted him. He was a rescue doggy. I rescue all my critters. Um, I always have. And uh, he was a rescue. I got him at two, and he was um, um, cr- absolutely crazy. Crazy. He was a Dalmatian. High energy, you know. And the poor thing had been through at least three households that we knew about, maybe more. So he had separation anxiety his entire life, totally understandable, but he just turned out to be the most fantastic dog. And I'll never forget, after we'd had him about a year, I mean, I have two boys, as you know, and none of us are particularly sort of sedentary, sane people. And I remember one of of, uh, my kids' friends saying, after we'd had this crazy doggy for a while, they said, you know... This dog found the right family, and this family found the right dog. <laughs> they were so right. <laughs> ah, that's great. Great to hear. And, you know, the rescue dogs, I really believe rescue animals know that they've been oh, rescued. I'm, I'm convinced I as well. No, they Like do. I say, I've had a number of them over the years, and I'm, I'm convinced as well, Roy. And they appreciate everything. Like a, um, a little Bichon, he was a rescue dog as well. And, and I know, I just know that he appreciates every single day that he was that he found a good home. So, our thoughts are with you, Catherine. And uh, thanks, thanks yeah. everybody. And I put it out on Twitter, and the, the Twitterverse, you know, is often criticized, and rightly so, for being a bunch of, you know, sort of rangy people. But I'll tell you, the kindness I've heard from all these people that follow me, but I don't even know most of them, you know, and it's been amazing. So yeah. the Twitterverse has its upside too. Common denominator. If you need, uh, you know, we've always said, if you need a friend, get a dog, because they they are wonderful friends, and uh, and it's hard to it's hard to be grumpy with each other when there's a nice dog in the middle. Yeah, very true. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Michelle. And we'll talk to you, uh, beauties. I almost said guys. I get myself in trouble again. Hey guys. Talk to yes. <laughs> talk to you guys again next Saturday. The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.